So when you talk about oil, you're talking about consecrating something or someone. You're setting them apart for the service of the Lord. And so priests and kings were anointed with oil because the people were recognizing that the prophet of God was setting him aside for the purpose of the Lord. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl will conclude his sermon in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, which is titled, Does Prayer and Oil Heal?, where he is explaining the display of faith as it relates to prayer. Let's join Pastor Carl in James chapter 5. Look, in the New Testament, every church was autonomous. The only authority above the local church in the first century were the apostles. But when the apostles died off, and there are no apostles today, now you might drive by a church and it says apostle so-and-so, it's not true. He's not an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, you had to have been personally selected by the resurrected Christ, and if those things were true, you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. But with that said, today with no living apostles, every elder is under the authority of Christ, and he is certainly under the authority of the word of God that the apostles gave us. But what I want you to see is that he is to call for the elders of the church, not the elders of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Why? Because in the New Testament, there was a plurality of elders that gave leadership. For instance, jot down a few of these verses out in the margin. Uh, Philippians 1.1, Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's another word for elders, and deacons. Or jot down this word, this verse, 1 Peter 5.5. Again, it assumes a plurality of elders. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Now, the old King James, I noted a few weeks ago, renders it a little bit differently. The new King James does it identically. It has nothing to do with manuscripts. Every manuscript reads identically. But the old King James says, likewise, ye younger, submit unto the elder. But he's not talking about a single elder, it's plural. Why did they do that? No doubt, because remember, this is the time where people for the first time are reading the scriptures. They have little knowledge and they're trying to communicate it so it's understandable. And in 17th century English, the word elder primarily had the connotation of an older person. But clearly in this context, he's talking about a pastor of a church. Jot down this verse, Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, talking about the Apostle Paul, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Likewise, uh, jot down this verse, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. For this reason I left you, Titus and Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city, as I directed you. Now, there are some churches that have a single elder form of government. Uh, Southern Baptists are going back to a plurality of elders. They're going back to their roots. But most say Southern Baptist churches have a single elder form of government, just one elder. And then they have a group of deacons that very often, in fairness to them, serve like elders. But understand, where do they build the case for that? Well, they would take you to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 
where Jesus addresses the seven churches. And if you remember, in those seven churches, there's a point man. He, in every single church, addresses the angel of the church in Laodicea or Philadelphia, the angel. Now, he's not talking about a literal angel. He's talking about a human angel. The word angel is a term, angelos, it's used to describe John the Baptist. It's used to describe angeloi in the plural, the disciples of John the Baptist. And so there's not angels in local churches who do the preaching and the teaching and the correcting. To put it in modern terminology, he is addressing the senior pastor of the church. And so the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders, but with that said, there is a leader amongst equals. And so typically, even a church that has, you know, several thousand people, a whole plethora of elders, you ask who the pastor is and one name is going to come up. Because there's a point man that God gives in a local church. So, for instance, when he addresses the church at Pergamum, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you, to you singular, speaking to the angelos, the angel, the pastor. You can call me Angel Carl if you want. I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them, plural, that is the church that you are called to lead, with the sword of my mouth. So the pronoun you is not plural, it's singular. Again, this is what today we call in modern terminology the senior pastor. And Jesus is basically saying, pastor, I'm coming to discipline your church, and I'm going to discipline them with the sword of my mouth, with the word of God, And you either let the Word of God judge your assembly by practicing and teaching that truth, or I will judge your assembly with the Word of God. It's a very sobering thing. But understand, with that said, this is not a case to build a single elder form of church government. There's always a plurality of elders in the new church. So they are to call for the elders, not just anyone, You call for the elders of the church, and we'll see why. Notice, further, they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So first, the elders pray over him, and the Greek construction is not clear in terms of the timing of the anointing. Do they anoint him before the prayer? Do they anoint him during the prayer? Do they anoint him after the prayer? If it was critical, God would have made it clear, but it's of little importance. But in either case, he calls for the elders of the church that are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I take it that this is a picture of the elders of a local assembly laying their hands, though the text never says they lay their hands on them. But I think that's what's in view, and I think we have biblical precedence for that in a passage like Mark 6 and verse 5. Jesus is in Nazareth, and because of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, we read, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And so very clearly, the sick person, he initiates the need for prayer. He calls the elders. They pray over him, and they anoint him with oil. Now, the word for oil is used in and outside of the Bible to refer to either olive oil or the oil of myrrh. Of greater importance would be for us to ask, what does it mean to anoint him with oil? Some people take that this is a form of medicinal fluid. And since olive 
Oil could be used medicinally. You remember the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, and he finds this guy who's been brutalized on the side of the road, and he, he washes his wounds, he pours wine on them, and there's a substance in wine that would kill the bacteria, and then he put oil on it that served as a Band-Aid, and they would say, well, you know, we've gone from, from oil to antibiotics to CAT scans to laser surgery. It's just more sophisticated. And so he's saying, prayer and medicine. I don't think so. Some faith healers say, hey, this is a prohibition not to use medicine. I don't think so. Nothing could be further from the truth because there are many examples within Scripture where God affirms medicine. And really, if you think about it, if oil is medicinal here, all medicine is is a form of substances combined together that God created to help you. Just like food helps you to keep your body strong. And certainly um, wine is used in Scripture medicinally. They would typically mix wine with water because, again, there's a substance within alcohol, not the alcohol itself, but a substance within the alcohol that kills the bacteria and makes it safe to drink. Don't say Jesus drank wine and he was making people drunk because that's blasphemous. Oh, you know, when they've drunk freely and they don't know the difference between the cheap stuff and the good stuff, he produced good stuff. Oh, that, that's blasphemous. Don't say that of our Lord. I can't help the ignorance of our day who would call someone like me some stupid fundamentalists for saying that Christians shouldn't use strong drink. No, I would say there's a place for it. If you live in a culture where the water's bad and you can't purify it, add a little bit of wine, they did it typically in a five-to-one ratio, according to a second-century A.D. pastoral manual, according to an old Jewish manual, and it purified it. Or they'd pour it on a cot, and it killed the bacteria. Just like, uh, or you could give it to a dying, despairing man, like in Proverbs 31. Why? It's an act of mercy, not to make him drunk, not to make a man in the hospital when you give him morphine a drug addict, but as an act of mercy. Now, with that said, I don't think that's what's in view. Prayer and medicine. Now, with that said, neither should we seek medicine to the exclusion of God. King Asa sought the physicians to the exclusion of God, and God was disappointed. King Hezekiah sought the Lord, and then God used medical means in which to heal him. So here is this situation, and God is wanting to heal an individual, but again, we'll see why. This person takes the initiative, and he comes, and God does what only God can do. You say, look, I've been healed, and I never prayed about it. I was like King Asa. I saw the doctor, never prayed about it. And that's a lot of Christians today. They go to the doctor. All they want is a prescription. Just give me the prescription. They feel like they're ripped off if they don't get a prescription. Give me something for the 50 bucks I just paid. But they don't pray about it. They said, but I got healed. Well, so did the 10 lepers. And they didn't seek healing. That was just an expression of God's common grace. But ultimately, God is the healer. He is the one who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. So they call for the elders. They anoint him with oil. And they pray, what? In the name of the Lord. They pray and anoint him in the name of the Lord. The Lord here is a reference as throughout the New Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I always find it interesting 
that when these faith healers, you know, pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, they always put a little flair to it. In the name of Jesus, I heal you. You know, Jesus. And like there's something magical in that. No, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in His authority, in His power. And we are recognizing that we are submissive to His will. So I don't think this text is saying, use all the available medical means that you can and then ask the Lord to pray for them. Look, they're coming to the elders, and the elders are not medical doctors. They're anointing him with oil for an entirely different reason. Oil in Scripture was used to set apart a thing or a person for the service of the Lord. So, for instance, in Leviticus 8, Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them, or sanctified them, the King James says. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar, and all its utensils, and the basin, and the stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to consecrate him. So when you talk about oil, you're talking about consecrating something or someone. You're setting them apart for the service of the Lord. And so priests and kings were anointed with oil because the people were recognizing that the prophet of God was setting him aside for the purpose of the Lord. We see the apostles in Mark 6, and they were casting out demons and were anointing many sick people in healing them. Why were they anointing them? Now that they were healed, they were saying, we are setting you apart for God's service. Look, why would I want to pray for someone to get well if they're rebellious and out of fellowship with God? I don't want to pray for their good health so they can serve the devil. No, I want to pray for their good health that they might serve the living God. And that's really what was taking place. So beyond the problem, the procedure, there's the prayer offered. I'm almost done. Stay with me. The prayer offered. Don't let your mind wander. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The prayer offered in faith. Now, there are these charlatans who go up and down the coast, bilking, naive, biblically ignorant people of their money, and they say, I'm here to pray the prayer of faith. And of course, when the prayer of faith is not answered, it's never their fault. It's your fault. It's your unbelief that hindered the miracle that God wanted to give you. Uh, he's talking about the prayer of faith that the elders express. And they'll take a verse like Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes you are healed. And they take that magnificent passage of Scripture that speaks of the atonement of Christ 750 years before it happens. And just as through faith in what Jesus did on the cross, your sins are forgiven, they argue equally by faith in what He did on the cross, your sicknesses can be forgiven because by His stripes you are healed. He's not talking about physical healing. How do you know, Pastor? Because the New Testament gives us divine commentary on that text. Peter says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 
the primary focus of the atonement is not to make us healthy and wealthy. It is to make us forgiven, holy people in the sight of God Almighty. And the focus here in this immediate context, the prayer of faith is in relation to sin that has been committed, which brings us to the promise made. Follow now, the promise made again in verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, several truths we need to take careful note of. He doesn't say he might raise him. He doesn't say, well, maybe he'll raise him up. He will raise him up, guaranteed the Lord will raise him up. If this passage is referring to sickness for any reason at all, like most people use it, then you would be super smart to come to the elders of the church every time you're sick, and if you think they're men of God and can offer a prayer of faith, let them anoint you and pray over you because you will be healed. That's the point of the text. Now understand, what is he referring to? If this were the case, then why did Paul have some sick co-workers in his uh, service of the Lord. We know from the book of Acts, the apostle Paul had the gift of healing, did he not? Yet who does he leave sick? And Miletus, Trophimus. Or think about Epaphroditus. Paul could have healed him, but he said he was near death. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? Or Timothy, the one he loved, his spiritual son in the faith. And he had stomach problems because he was kind of a traveling pastor, had a lot of bad water. So take a little wine for your frequent illnesses. You mix the wine with the water because it made it safe to drink. If all it took was prayer and a little dab of oil, then what was withholding these faithful servants from being healed? The key phrase is verse 15. If he has committed any sins, plural, implying that it's not just once in this ongoing lifestyle, now, many of you know that the word if in the Greek New Testament is different from if in English. If typically in English can mean maybe or possibly or probably. But in the New Testament, there are four if statements, four, four conditional statements that are used in Greek. Like many of you know, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He's not questioning that he's the Son of God. He's actually using a first-class conditional Greek statement to underscore what he knew. You are the Son of God, so turn these rocks into bread. And so without going into all the Greek and all the grammar and to bore you and spend another 20 minutes, this person is sick because he's committed sins. If he has committed sins, and he has, that's the thought behind it. Again, for this reason, many of you are sick. Why? Because of sin in the life. And so here's a person who recognizes I've got a sickness that is connected to personal sin in my life, and I am under the discipline of God Almighty. It might be some secret personal sin that no one else knows, but he and God knows, and he knows he needs to get it right. Or more likely and more probably, this is a person who has been put under church discipline by the elders. I've been your pastor for over 30 years. I think I'd be conservative to say that we've exercised church discipline at least 50 times. Now, most time, it's either me personally or me or one or two other pastors. 
And in the vast majority of the cases, with the exception of six, it ended on the second level. But on six cases in 30 years, it went to the third level, where we brought it before the church. And if a person then doesn't repent, he's removed from the church, he's removed from the protective umbrella of the local assembly. Now, I know the old King James says if a man has faults, and that was superb for 17th century English, but a fault doesn't really imply sin today. He's talking about a sin, a person who is sick because of sin. I pled with a man yesterday. I didn't have time to do it, but I thought I don't have time not to do it. This precious saint contacted me, so I contacted her back. She's a believer. Her husband's living in Florida in adultery. They've got two kids. And I always fight on the side of the kids because I know what it does to them when you tear apart two living people that God has made one. And I said to him, look, if you really know Christ like you say, and you can live in this adulterous relationship, you're going to wear out God's patience. He's long-suffering, but you are going to invite the discipline of God Almighty. If you don't experience that, it just means you've never met Christ. You've got a form of godliness without power. You're one of those folks who receive the word with joy, get baptized, believe for a while here, but not in the heart. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and then you'll fall away. But here we're dealing with someone who recognizes, I've got this sickness because I am under the discipline of God. And so James says that this person will be restored or revived is what the word means. He's speaking of a believer. Unbelievers don't experience God's discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The word revived or restored, depending on your translation, revived means you've been ived. So you're revived. You know, he's talking about a person who's already saved, who is coming to fix the problem. He's describing like the person in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know the case, the guy sleeping with his stepmother. Well, I'm going to put him out. You should have, Corinthians. I'm going to do it. And he's going to have some real problems. Of course, he repented, 2 Corinthians 2 indicates. So, the prayer offered in faith will restore, revive the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Not might be, but will. Because they recognize in faith that this person is genuinely repentant and that God wants to restore them, that this is not a sickness unto death, that God wants to restore them in their testimony. Therefore, because of the preceding statement, verse 16, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We'll look at that in depth next week because that's a hinge verse that connects the following verses in the end. So contextually, the focus here, unlike our Roman Catholic friends, they have seven sacraments. God has zero sacraments. God doesn't have any sacraments. He has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. He doesn't have any sacraments. But the sacrament of extreme unction the priest comes, you're on your deathbed, he anoints your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth. I've got a Catholic pastoral manual in my library back there when I took courses at a Catholic seminary. And then it says, by this holy oil in his tender mercy, God forgive you of whatever you have sinned by sight, hearing, smell, and touch. 
And they use this verse as a basis, James 5, for this so-called sacrament. Contextually, here, the focus is not on dying, it is on healing. It's not on death, it's on health. But, you know, for them, you get this blessed oil, and maybe you can even bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. Pray over him, anoint him with oil. You don't do that flippantly. Paul warns, look, I don't care if you're laying hands on a man to be a deacon or an elder or for healing because of sin. Paul says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. I mean, why should you pray for someone to have strength who's not repentant, who's only serving the evil one? So the focus is clear. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Second, God will raise him up, not the elders. The Lord will raise him up. And third, if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. You know, when Audrey and I were first married, we met a retired couple that just loved us and cared for us and wanted to encourage us, Roland and May. He was a commercial builder, built hospitals, universities, all kinds of things. In fact, he's in the Philanthropic Hall of Fame because he gave away so much money. But he had an um, 18-year-old son who went out and got drunk, was in a car accident, had a brain stem injury, and he was basically a vegetable. But Roland, hoping that Maybe someday medical science would advance where the brainstem injury could be corrected. He built this magnificent nursing home at his own expense. And his son, whom we went to visit on three different occasions, had the very best care in the world. But in that process, he went from this faith healer to that faith healer. He gave tens of thousands of dollars, and no one ever asked him whether or not he even knew Christ as his personal Savior. Because no one was really concerned with that. Because they're wicked, selfish rebels who are only interested in lining their own wallets and not in the kingdom of God. Look, what's more important than a man's soul? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, even the finest of health, and in the end he loses his soul? Three applications, we're done. First, pray when you're overwhelmed with a trial. Pray when you're overwhelmed with a trial. Right out of the text. Second, sing. Sing when you're overflowing with joy. Third, repent when you are overpowered by sin. And God promises you will be revived, guaranteed. Now, Holy Father, what a challenging passage you've given us, but we thank you that we could study it in depth today. Thank you for the attention of these brothers and sisters who are not here for a 20-minute sermon, but who are serious of growing in Christ. We pray that you would help us to rightly divide the word of truth, that in our ministries, to our families and our friends and those whom you've entrusted us to disciple, that we might be faithful to use the word of God accurately. There are many, Father, I know who are listening to me who are sick for one reason or another, some just because they are in a fallen world, some because you are developing a sense of understanding and compassion in their ministry to other people, some like a 
Johnny Erickson Tata that you're using for your glory, that we're not seeking healing, but we are seeking you like Job of old. But maybe someone listening to me who is sick because they've brought it on themselves and they are one of yours and for that reason you are disciplining them. Help them to make it right that they might walk in holiness and be set apart once again for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, Pastor Carl suggests three ways that we can display our faith as it relates to prayer. First, we should pray when we are overwhelmed. Second, we can sing when we are overflowing with joy. And third, we can repent when we are overpowered by sin. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 014. Please remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.